Now, I want you to look with me to one, probably one of the most uh, significant, uh, well-known passages of Scripture that is about Christmas in all the Bible, Isaiah 9. It's the third week of our Advent celebrations, and this passage is going to reinforce the idea we started talking about last week. Grace flows downhill to the humble, the broken, the sinful, and the unworthy. That's really the message of the whole Bible. But Christmas is the pinnacle of that story, the greatest example of God stooping down and choosing to get in humanity's mess. The Christmas story stirs up a lot of different emotions and feelings in people. And most of those feelings are sentimental, pleasant, warm, and nostalgic. If you took a survey of the average person out on the streets and you just started asking people what Christmas means to them, you would hear them say things like, it means spending time with family, or Christmas is about generosity and giving. You might even run into some that are deep and philosophical, and they say things like, Christmas means love will triumph in the world, and it proves that the human race can come together and build unity and world peace. Now, that last one was the message of one of the most famous songs of my preteen years. Do you remember these lyrics? We are the world. We are the children. We are the ones who make a brighter day, so let's start giving. There's a choice we're making. We're saving our own lives. It's true we'll make a better day, just you and me. That song was written in 1985 by Michael Jackson and Lionel Richie, and it pulled together some of the most famous, famous musical personalities in the world to generate aid and relief for starving people in Africa in a live event called Live Aid. In the middle of all of these joyous musical stars singing at this celebratory moment about the human race's ability to save itself, one of the stars looked noticeably different than everybody else. Bob Dylan was incredibly uncomfortable during that performance. It was visibly noticeable. And if you haven't ever done it, Google Bob Dylan during the uh, We Are the World. It's painful to watch. Like he is miserable up there. So miserable, it's become a meme in modern world watching Bob Dylan at We Are the World performance. And somebody asked him, a Rolling Stones newspaper reporter or magazine reporter asked him when it was over, why were you so miserable and uncomfortable singing that song? And he responded because he didn't agree with its message. And he said this, humankind cannot save itself. Bob Dylan wasn't talking about Christmas when he made that statement. But his insight about the hit song, We Are the World, literally summed up the central message of Christmas in one single statement. The message of Christmas is this. Humankind cannot save itself. That's why God robed himself in flesh, became a baby laid in an animal's feed trough, grew up to become a suffering savior who would live the life you should have lived and died the death you should have died. God wrote Christmas into the human story because humankind cannot save itself. In this well-known Christmas passage of Isaiah 9, the prophet is announcing the meaning of Christmas and his announcement about Christmas sounds a lot like Bob Dylan's statement. Humankind cannot save itself. Let me read the most familiar parts that are read every Christmas season and then I'm going to point you to the overlooked piece 
of Isaiah's announcement that's probably unfamiliar, unnoticed, and you've never connected it to the Christmas story. Isaiah 9.1 says, Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who were in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the future, he will honor Galilee of the nations by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace." Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing it and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. That's the familiar part read most often at Christmas. The good news about the promise that accompanies the the announcement of the coming Messiah. Jesus is coming, there is hope. That's the Christmas story. But now let me point you to the unfamiliar part. Notice the first word of chapter 9 is nevertheless. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who are in distress. Beginning the chapter with the word nevertheless means you can't really understand what chapter 9 is saying until you understand what chapter 8 has already said. So look at the last few verses of chapter 8, verse 19. When someone tells you to consult mediums and spiritists who whisper and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? Why consult the dead on behalf of the living? Consult God's instruction and the testimony of warning. If anyone does not speak according to this word, they have no light of dawn. Distressed and hungry, they will roam through the land. When they are famished, they will become enraged and look upward and curse their king and their God. Then they will look toward the earth and see only distress and darkness and fearful gloom, and they will be thrust into utter darkness. At the end of chapter 8, the Israelites are crushed under famine and all kinds of social and psychological problems, and they're running everywhere looking for answers. They're looking to philosophers and brilliant minds for intellectual solutions. They're looking to psychics and mediums and spiritists for spiritual solutions. They're just trying to find answers to their problems. And Isaiah says they look toward the earth. But the more they search within the earth for answers, the more they look for earthly solutions, the more darkness they see and the more hopeless they become. But then chapter 9 breaks on the scene with this word, nevertheless. There will be no more gloom for those who are in distress. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of darkness, a light has dawned. Isaiah is describing Christmas in these verses, the coming of Jesus into the world. And notice how he describes it. A light has dawned. If it dawned, it means the light didn't come from within us. It has to come upon us. It's not a light that comes from the earth as people believe We are the world. We are the children. We decide to make a brighter day. Let's save ourselves. It's not a light we develop. It's a light we discover. It has to come from outside us, from beyond us. It's an intervening light that has to dawn upon us. It doesn't exist within us. 
Christmas is God's intervention into the human story. It's the dawning of God upon the human scene. It's grace flowing down. It's love stooping down to get in the dirt on our behalf into humanity's mess. God has to meet us where we are because things are so utterly dark here and we can't get to him. We keep looking within ourselves for earthly solutions and it keeps getting darker and darker. But the hope of Christmas is nevertheless a light has dawned. For many people, Christmas is nothing more than a we are the world message. A lot of warm fuzzies and nostalgia and Frosty the Snowman and dreams of white Christmases and chestnuts roasting over an open fire. And that message isn't just a little different than the real message of Christmas. It's diametrically opposed to it. The real message of Christmas is not sentimentalism or nostalgia. It is a living truth about the intervention of God into human history. And its reality has life-altering and eternal consequences. There is real substance and depth to Christmas that goes far beyond the sentimentality of Hallmark movies and nostalgic Christmas music. But the real message is often missed or reduced to we are the world type stuff. Even for those of us that are devoutly Christian, we're familiar with the passages in the Bible about the incarnation like Isaiah 9 because we've heard it our whole lives. And it's become so familiar to us as lyrics and songs or quotes on Christmas cards that we've domesticated these powerful passages about Christmas. Christmas is familiar, but it isn't tame. Tim Keller says it this way, Christmas is both more wondrous and more threatening than we imagine. This passage in Isaiah says, the people who walked in darkness have discovered a great light. It came upon them. They didn't generate it, they didn't ignite it, they didn't start it, they didn't light it. The light came from beyond them. They discovered it. It came from upon them, outside them. It came down to them. So what does this passage in Isaiah tell us about the real meaning of Christmas? I'm just going to point out two things today, and mostly the first one. I'm going to lean on it and just touch the second. Number one, Christmas shows us that the world is a dark place. Yes, the message of Christmas is a message of unparalleled hope. But at the same time, Christmas tells us something sobering about our world and about us, about our own hearts and our own minds. At the end of chapter 8, Isaiah says, they look to the earth for answers, but find nothing but, un but utter darkness. Look, the human race has always been aware of its problems, it's good at diagnosing its problems. It's just not been able to find the answers. And in Isaiah's day, the people were running around looking to mystics and astrologers and spiritual mediums to try to drum up some kind of answer to their problems. The ancient Greeks were different. The ancient Greeks looked to the intellect. They weren't big on mysticism or politics. They believed humanity's answer was in the development of wisdom, knowledge, and education. The solution to humanity's problems to the ancient Greek was within the human mind. If the world was going to be saved, it was going to be through unlocking the knowledge of the human mind. According to the ancient Greeks, our physical and psychological and sociological problems would all be solved through intellectual enlightenment. Now, the ancient Jews were very different from that. 
The Jews of Jesus' time didn't believe that we could change the world by building more, building more and bigger universities, that the ed- educational elite was going to come along and save us. No, but they did believe in politics. To the ancient Jew, the world was going to be saved by a new leader. The problem with the human crisis to them was a crisis of leadership. They were looking for somebody that could rally the people toward a vision and throw off the yoke of the oppressor. The Jews said, we need leadership. Can't you see history repeating itself? If you read the headlines in today's world, you see the exact same thing. Everybody can see the problems, but nobody can agree on the solutions. Some say the answer is in mysticism or politics or the economist or the philosopher or the scientist. But the more we look to them, the more we look within the earth for answers, the darker it gets. Every culture... Every generation has been looking to these groups one way or another for six millennia, and it's not getting any better. It's getting worse. We're going from darkness to utter darkness. Bertrand Russell was a British philosopher and mathematician who was also an atheist, and he wrote a little book entitled, Why I Am Not a Christian. And of all the things Bertrand Russell and I would disagree on, I have a great respect for his understanding of the condition of the human race apart from God. Russell understood the darkness of human existence and he refused to let his readers or his students or anybody he influenced ignore the darkness of human existence or try to deny it. Russell's ideas say, if there is no God or if we can't know for sure there is a God, then stop trying to comfort yourself by singing Christmas carols. If there's no God, then we're all the result of a cosmological accident, creatures of chance, the accidental collision of molecules. And the unfortunate tragedy of that is through the chance happenings of evolution, we also develop a conscience, which means we feel and have emotions and But because we're all the result of meaningless process of chance, that means our feelings and our emotions don't really matter either. They are meaningless. So Russell basically says the best thing you can do is come to terms with the unyielding despair this life has to offer and realize that you and all of mankind will eventually die off with a whole universe that is headed for total and utter destruction. And according to Russell, that's just the way life goes. Russell's understanding about the darkness of human existence apart from God ends up sounding a lot like the hopelessness that you see at the end of Isaiah chapter 8. Utter hopeless darkness. But you don't have to go to Isaiah or a deceased atheist to hear about the darkness. Just this week, a news anchor that has been a staple on the nightly news cycle in America for almost 30 years gave his farewell and signed off with a warning about the darkness. Listen to the telling statements of Brian Williams from just this last Thursday night, and I quote, After 28 years of peacock logos on much of what I own, it is my choice now to jump without a net into the great unknown. The truth is, I'm not a liberal or a conservative. I'm an institutionalist. I believe in this place, and in love of country, I yield to no one. But the darkness on the edge of town has spread to the main roads and highways and neighborhoods. It's now at the local bar, in the bowling alley, at the school board, and the grocery store, and it must be acknowledged and answered for. 
So whether you arrive at your awareness and understanding of the darkness of human existence through the atheism of Russell or the preaching of the prophet Isaiah or a modern day news anchor. Once you become aware of the tragic reality, you only have a few options. Number one, denial. You can ostrich your way through this. You can stick your head in the sand and do everything within your power not to think about it. Stay busy, work yourself crazy, throw yourself into your hobbies. Anything not to face the brevity of your life and the dire human circumstance. Or two, hedonism, which is basically the pursuit of pleasure and sensual self-indulgence without boundaries. If the ship is sinking and we're all in a fast lane to eternal destruction, we might as well eat, drink, marry, and party ourselves to death. If we're like ACDC on that highway to hell, we might as well party ourselves into oblivion. Hedonism. Or three, you can join Bertrand Russell and his agnostic and atheist counterparts who simply say you might as well surrender to the despair. Since God doesn't exist and you're just the result of an accidental collision of molecules, then just come to term with the darkness and tragedy of human existence. But in the process, they tell us, try to be noble in the face of despair by acting compassionately and mercifully as possible to your fellow travelers on the sinking ship of human existence. And based on their own teaching, if there's no God and we're just the result of an accidental collision of molecules, and our feelings and emotions are not really real, they're too the result of chance, where, does those, where do those feelings come from? Where does my desire to show compassion and mercy come from? And if there is no God, does it even matter? Once you become aware of the darkness, you have a real limited option. Denial, hedonism, despair, or you can believe in Christmas. You can believe in the hopeful, nevertheless, of Christmas. Listen to Isaiah's announcement again. Chapter 8 ends with the darkness. Then they will look toward the earth and see only distress and darkness and fearful gloom and they will be thrust into utter darkness. But chapter 9 begins with the nevertheless of Christmas. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who are in distress. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light and those living in the land of deep darkness, upon them a light has dawned. Christmas is not we are the world messaging telling us that if we'll all just get in a circle and hold hands and get along and believe in each other, everything is going to be all right. The Christmas message, the Christian message of Christmas, not the culture's version, but the Bible version of Christmas is honest about the darkness. Christianity acknowledges that things are worse than the most pessimistic analyst will even admit. But then when it names the darkness, it steps into the darkness and announces, nevertheless, your greatest hope isn't in the mystic or the economist or the court judge or the politician or your therapist or the intellectual elite. Your hope is in this announcement. It's dark. Nevertheless, a light has dawned. Hope has come. And the good news is hope has a name. Isaiah says he is wonderful, counselor, mighty God, prince of peace, everlasting father, Jesus. An awareness of the darkness like Russell. Without the nevertheless of Christmas, 
is hopelessness. Without God's intervention into human history, there is no comfort, there is no light, there is no hope. We're just basically trapped here. We're stuck. And if you're lucky, you'll get to 80 or so. And you better squeeze all the comfort and joy out of those 80 you can get because that's all you got. When it's over, it's over. But Christmas makes Christian hope different. When I build my life on the promise of Christmas, I'm not only buying into something that is true and real, I'm buying something into something that is eternally true and eternally real. So if I lose my health or my wealth or my comfort, the darkness doesn't destroy me because I realize that my real riches through Jesus Christ are intact for eternity. Everything that is really important to me, that really matters, is going to be with me from this day into eternity. But some of us, as Christians, are still trying to deal with the darkness like secular people. We're still trying to deal with the darkness in a non-Christian way. Some of us keep saying, you know, it's not all that bad. It's not that dark at all. We're in denial. You know what we're doing? We're walking through utter darkness, whistling in the dark. And we look like a band playing on the sinking Titanic. Numbering ourselves. We're numbing ourselves at the gym. We're going to the bar. It's our pain meds. It's overworking. It's compulsively chasing other things. Anything to help us avoid the reality of the darkness. But you don't beat the darkness by ignoring it. You don't beat it by trying to deny it. And you definitely can't beat it by succumbing to the despair because of the darkness. Christianity, Christmas and Christianity acknowledges the darkness. But it announces hope into the darkness that comes from beyond us. A light has dawned upon us. Grace has flowed downhill to us. I told you a few minutes ago I'd point out two things. The message of Christmas shows us, number one, the world is a dark place. But secondly, Christmas shows us that God brings light into the most unexpected, through the most unexpected and unlikely ways. I'm just going to hit this quickly today. I'm going to save this. In 1993, the Christian vocal group For Him released a song that summarized what I'm saying right here perfectly. That song was called, It's a Strange Way to Save the World. And when you read Isaiah 9, you see God really picked a strange way to save the world. And when you read Isaiah 9, you read the Christmas story, you realize how different God must be from us. Christmas is the pinnacle of his salvation story. It is the crescendo of his divine intervention into human history. But he's so backwards. It's so upside down. It's so paradoxical to our way of thinking. He chose to come as a baby of all things. And he chose to be born in a despised backwoods town of Nazareth. We're going to get into this more. But you don't understand how low budget Nazareth was. I mean, those of you that have come to Dallas, and when people ask where you're from, you don't tell them you're from Mule Shoe or Possum City. You say Dallas, okay? He chose to be born in Mule Shoe, Gun Barrel City, Possum City. I mean, he chose Nazareth, a baby born in a despised hometown of Nazareth to poor parents, to be born into the scandal of an unwed teenage mother, to be laid in an animal's food trough in a barn. God must be very different from us. 
Because if we were sending a king to save the world, that is not at all how a human author would have penned the story. The real story is dirty, smelly, messy, scandalous, audacious, ludicrous, and even some ways offensive to human sensibility. God, a baby from a virgin? It all proves that his grace flows downhill to the humble at the foot of the mountain. Humankind cannot save itself. So he chose to let his light dawn upon us in the most unexpected and unlikely ways, a strange way to save the world. I'm going to develop that idea further in a sermon in the coming days, but let me focus on the words of Paul from the book of Philippians. And I'm going to tell you, most of the time when you've read what I'm about to read, you didn't think of Christmas. It is about Jesus. It is about the incarnation. And it is about the miracle of Christmas. Philippians 2, verse 5, Paul writes, Have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, here's Christmas. He made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. In deep humility, driven by a deep and passionate love for you, Jesus, the Son of God, emptied himself. He became nothing. He poured himself out. He said a hope-filled nevertheless to the glory and the splendor of heaven to descend into the darkness of human existence. He said nevertheless to the throne and chose a manger. He said nevertheless to the the crown and chose a cross. Christmas reminds us that God came to earth in humility. That's how he got to you, humble and broken. And you know what? If you want to get to him, you got to go, you got to get to him the same way he got to you through humility, emptiness, and brokenness. You can't come to God and act like he owes you something because you've lived a moral life, you've been a good person. You can't come to God and arrogantly act like he owes you because you've lived a hard life. You have to come to God the same way he got to you. Humble, empty, broken. Let me tell you what your friends are going to say. If you do this, you give your whole life to Jesus and you make his way your way. Let me tell you what they're going to talk. They're going to call you a fool. Because the world will tell us that this surrender and this self-denial and this sacrifice stuff that the way of Jesus, it's foolish. Turning the other cheek and going the second mile and serving all all that is foolishness. We're in a dog-eat-dog world, a capitalistic society. It's kind of Machiavelli. The ends justifies the means. You've got to step on some people to get to the top. That's the philosophy of our world. Two diametrical opposed ideas. The way of Jesus, surrender, self-denial, sacrifice, humility, emptiness, brokenness. The way up is down to the mindset of our culture. All right, let me just compare the two in one quick statement. Think about it. Think about the last 2,000 years of history, okay? The trough he was born in and the garbage heap he died on is more famous than the Caesars and the Pharaohs that called him a fool. Their names have all been expunged from history for the most part 
Nobody remembers who they are. The ones we remember are the ones that were associated with him. And yet they called him a fool. Humility is foolishness to the world. But it's the way of greatness. It's why Paul would write in the very next verse of Philippians 2 and verse 9. Therefore, because of his humility... God exalted him to the highest place and gave him a name that is above every name. That at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. When I opted out of pre-med to go to an unaccredited Bible college, my counselors at school told me I was a fool. When I argued and wrestled with intellectual elites about my belief in God, I had philosophers tell me I was a fool. My whole life, I've been told I was a fool. Humility, surrender, sacrifice, servanthood is foolish to our world. But let me tell you this, God honors humility. The way up is down. The way to life is death. You you live by dying. You win by losing. You go up by going down. He comes to those who stoop in humility. Grace always flows His way is the way to greatness. We're at the Advent wreath this morning at concluding the service. Week one, we lit the hope candle. The first theme of Advent is hope. And if Advent tells us anything, it reminds us of the nevertheless in the darkness. God breaks into the mess of human existence. There's hope. The second thing we talked about last week, we focused on peace. The peace of God that comes in Christ. We can make peace with God in our sinful hearts because of Jesus. He's our mediator that helps us make peace with God. But it also means, Isaiah announced him today as the Prince of Peace, that in the darkness of this world, there's a a calm in the midst of the storm, an eye of the storm, and it is a peace that passes all of understanding. It is Jesus. It is Advent peace. And then today we focus on love. Next week will be joy. Today is love. There is nothing that embodies the love of the gospel, the loving heart of God, more than the Christmas story. He pursued us from heaven to earth. He chased us. His love stoops down. And I don't know where you are today, what you've done, how shameful or sinful you feel, addicted you may be. His love is stooping today just like it did into Bethlehem 2,000 years ago. And He will meet you in your mess. 